talking about some really wonderful things. I was ministering from Matthew, the 13th chapter, about some parables that Jesus shared. One being um, the treasure that you are, which God has buried in a field and bought the whole field. And Jesus bought that field, the whole world, with his life, with his blood. And the treasure is you, frankly, that's buried in the church, the remnant of the church, those who will accept the Lord as, as their Savior and put their trust in Him and yield their lives to Him. You are hidden all over the world. And only God knows those who will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's our duty to be the hands and feet of the Lord and to go out and help dig up, as it were, this precious treasure of God's to clean it up and to put it on the right track. You're the pearl of great price and value in God's eyes. You're also kings and priests. I know that got a chuckle out of a few, but to God, that's what you are. Kings and priests forever. In Christ, and one day you will judge angels and all these things that are so lofty and seemingly unreal to us is really what our true identity is in God. God paid the price for this. We, as mankind, gave away our rights and, and privileges in this world when, because God had given it over to man when He gave Adam and Eve the garden and the dominion over it they gave away their authority to Satan when they yielded to sin and and God made a way back for us and it was very costly he paid the whole thing you know if Donald Trump gave you all the money he had the billions he has and you were on death row in prison, it wouldn't do you a bit of good unless he came somehow and and served your sentence, paid that death penalty for you in your stead, which they wouldn't let him do anyway. But God devised a way to do that very thing with his son, Jesus Christ. And we're thankful. He went on to tell us the parable of uh, of the banquet that he invited, first of all, the Jews, his chosen people, to come and to serve him and to know him and to worship him, and they rejected him. And so he he allowed the Gentiles to come in, and he said, "Go into all the go into the streets and go go whoever will bring them in, the lame and the crippled, the poor, whoever will come, let them come." And so I was saying in, in the kingdom of God at this great banquet feast of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a lot of undesirables there in the eyes of the world. And all of the those with the greatest gifts and talents and looks and money and all the things in this life, many of them will not be present. Because all of the things that God has blessed them with, they have 
decided that those things were of their own doing and, and that they didn't need God for some reason. And that's a sad thing. In spite of God's goodness, many do reject Him and will. God says the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a kingdom of opposites. I talk about that a lot. I think that many times the world sees the church as full of hypocrisy, full of hypocrites. Had a young man here on Wednesday night telling us that. And, uh, of course, <clears throat> that's not a really good excuse to stay away from God. I told him it's like burning your house down to get rid of a rat. Very counterproductive. You don't want to be along, right alongside those religious hypocrites in hell. <laughs> it's not about them. It's about you and God. He said he understood. I posted a story yesterday. A young woman, I thought it was very brave of her. She... She posted a video of herself telling about apologizing to her elders. And any of us who are of that elder group, I guess, I still don't really see myself that way, but I guess it's time to go ahead and admit it. But she was just saying that, you know, how the old older generation criticizes the millennials and her generation, and she really has put some thought into it. Wanted to see if there was any basis for it, and so she had to give it some real caring thought and she decided yeah they're right you know they're right that my my generation she said doesn't have any manners we don't know yes ma'am and no sir we don't open doors for anybody and we're critical we're opinionated we're not contributing to our society we're just existing we're just taking and all the things that weren't even considered uh, something you would do 20 years ago, 50 years ago especially, she goes, those are the norm now and they're embraced. We embrace people like the Cardassians and we make fun and criticize people like Tim Tebow. And she just went on and on and then she ended with a great apology for herself and her generation. For, and she really wanted to make an effort to do better. And I thought it was great. I... I reposted it or shared it, whatever you say. I noticed nobody clicked on it, <laughs> but she did have a lot of views on that. But, you know, I can't let her take the responsibility for everything there because that's a great step to, to, to take responsibility for your own life and your own actions. You see, that's, that's step number one. But, you know, I think that, uh, that the church and the family... We owe, we owe everyone an apology because the church is where it all is supposed to start. I don't know what's happened. I know that there's no, no discipline anymore. God says we hate our children if we don't discipline them. Well, a lot of people are hating their children, I guess, because it's just not something that's really politically correct anymore. <laughs> and the ones that do discipline, they do it out of anger and they do it in the wrong way and they're not willing to take the time that is really required to do things right and to follow up with way more love and explanation than the punishment. 
We finished in Luke 14 yesterday, and at the end, Jesus just finished it off saying, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. It just gets thrown out into the dung pile. You know, it's not good for anything. Matthew elaborated on that a little bit more in Matthew 5, and starting at the 13th verse. He said, you, talking about you as believers, as the church, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Remember that treasure in the field that I described you as, that God says you are his treasure and hidden in the field all around the world. And then someone came and preached the gospel to you and and basically dug you up out of that dirt and cleaned you up and set you on the right path and and introduce you to God. And I think that uh, I think the Lord was giving me an example that a lot of Christians, uh, they have you ever seen a clam? How they will, <laughs> when they, uh, you know, they, they'll dig back into the dirt. And it, if you don't dig them fast enough, they just dig further down into the mud. And I think a lot of Christians are like clams. They just have gone and buried themselves back in the mud until they look just like the world again. How does a Christian stay buried in the mud or rebury itself after it's been cleaned up and, and brought into the kingdom of God by being carnal? You know what that means? Carnal doesn't necessarily mean sinful in the way that we think of sin. Carnal is just being natural, naturally minded, worldly minded. Unlike what we were talking about earlier, John, where we say we live by faith, not by sight. A carnal person lives by sight and not by faith. Jesus had the same problem with those in his life. One time he had been ministering to some people all day and he started feeling bad for them because it was getting late. And they were out in the wilderness and and they didn't have anything to eat and he knew that it was going to be a problem. And so, he tells the disciples, one of the disciples, you need to feed them. And they, right away, said, that'll take, I'm just going to paraphrase, that'll take like a year's salary just to, just to give everybody here just something to eat. There was 5,000 men there, so I mean, there could have been 10,000 people. Immediately, their minds went to the natural. Where are we going to go to buy all the food? The stores will be closed. Everything in town, if we get to the nearest town, it's all going to be closed. There's not enough. We don't have enough money. And Jesus said, what do you have? What do you have? And they said, you know, five little loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He said, give it to me. And he, he blessed it. And he gave it to them and after they had had the people sit down in groups of fifties and hundreds and, and he gave it 
to the disciples, and they fed everybody there, and they had seconds, they had as much as they wanted, and they had leftovers. It was supernatural. <laughs> but their minds went straight to the natural. After being with Jesus, and they had just seen him work all kinds of miracles, I mean, that week, <laughs> that day. Same thing when, when they were at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. He came down with uh, James and John and Peter. He, and there were other disciples there waiting for them at the foot of the mountain. And there was a great crowd. And, and so a man had brought his child who had epilepsy. And he said, he said, will you heal him? He said, I gave him to your disciples. They couldn't do it. Jesus said, bring him to me. How long am I going to be with you? <laughs> Faithless. Perverse generation. I don't think he was mad. I think he was frustrated, if God can be frustrated. Is this like, haven't I shown you? Haven't, haven't you seen yet that all these things are possible and, and what great authority you're going to have? And he was probably thinking, man, I'm fixing to turn my church over to these, these guys. <laughs> and he healed him. People in general, we, we tend to, I say we go to Google before we go to God. And that's, that's, a, that's a mistake. I love Google. It's a valuable tool, obviously, an asset. But do we pray first? You know? We tend to come to God only we, after we've exhausted all of the world's resources. The doctors, the, you know, even the church sends people. Have, have you been to the doctor? What did the doctors say? What medications are you on? Send you to a psychiatrist. I was, I was, I have a pastor I'm very fond of. I heard him tell thousands of people one time, man, I need, why don't y'all come and go on this trip to Mexico with us? Don't worry, you know, you think you can't get your, your medication, you can't leave home. Hey, they serve, uh, Prozac over the counter down there. This is a preacher of the gospel. The one who's supposed to have the answers. Is God mad at us if we go to the doctor? No. Is he mad at us if we take medicine? No. I'm not saying these. I'm saying first go to God. If I don't feel good, you know where I want to go first? Church. My Bible tells me if any be sick among you, come bring them to the elders of the church. They're going to lay hands on you and you're going to be well. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. <laughs> you know? So many Christians, you know, the divorce rate in the church is just the same as it is in the world. But with God, the success rate's 100%. I said that last week, and it's true. The church looks too much like the world. And the church is really the answer for the world. When we're gone, excuse my language, they're screwed. God loves us in spite of our deeds. If you have come to the Lord, you have been redeemed and made new. He loves you. It's not about behavior modification that we're talking about. It's not about doing good deeds. 
those things come as a byproduct of the relationship that God is after with us. I was in the book of Romans this morning. Romans 6.20 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good actions don't make a lost person righteous any more than bad action make a saved person evil. Do you understand that? When you were lost, before you knew God, you had a sin nature that came from Adam. That's what separated you from God. When you were saved, that Sin nature was evicted. Now you have the nature of God. So not only is there nothing else compelling you to sin anymore, but you don't have that thing which kept you separated from God anymore. It's like you have a new address, a holy one. And that's why God sees you. He's a spirit. And so he's renewed your spirit and now he can... Relate to you based on that born again spirit, which is perfect, which has the mind of Christ and is sealed forever. And now our mind and our will and our emotions, our soul is being renewed as we come into agreement with God. And this old vehicle we have will just follow suit, you see. So that's the good thing. God loves us independent of our performance. Look at Romans 4. If you have your Bible, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's the redeemed person. You see? We weren't going to hell because of our individual sins. We were born sinful because of our nature that was corrupted from the Garden of Eden. Jesus gave us his new Holy Spirit. New nature. And that's how God sees us now. It's important to understand this because it will help us to serve God out of love and out of appreciation. And the fear of God in the new covenant for believers now are, is one of gratitude and Respect and awe. I serve God because I, I love Him and I'm overwhelmed by what He's done for me. Not because I'm afraid if I don't, He's going to get me. You see? There's a huge difference in the motivation there. One motivation won't get you anything from God. The other just helps you to rest in what He's already provided. Yeah. I want to I want to look at something. This is a passage of scripture. This is kind of hard to get sometimes, I think. And but when you do get it, it empowers you. It empowers you to to be free and to live for God out of love and gratitude. Romans seven is a chapter that is usually 
misunderstood, misinterpreted, I think. And I want to show you what God has shown me. Because most people are familiar with this. Let's see where Paul gets off and it says, and it makes it look like it's a, he's a schizo or something here. Paul says, uh, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, starting at the 13th verse. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law was really designed to show you your need for a savior it was never meant to make you good and holy if it if it were then you could have just done it and you would have been fine but you could never done it because you had this sin nature in you and the the law in front of us and the ten commandments was just pointing out our sinfulness and brought condemnation and death into our lives reading on the part that i'm trying to get to but sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment. Okay, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death? to me by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure for we know that the law is spiritual but i am of the flesh sold under sin okay now listen to this this is where he takes off on this rant i think For I do not understand my own actions, he says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. <laughs> Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I, am, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive of the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of death, this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So a lot of times you hear this talked about as, well, this just shows that uh, within man, there's good, there's a good side and there's a bad side. There's always going to be this frustration because if Paul, the apostle that wrote over a third of the New Testament, if he struggled with it and he was doing so great, then it just should make us feel better that we're going to always be frustrated too. And sometimes we're going to do good and sometimes we're going to do bad. It's basically condoning this concept of a sin nature and this dual nature and this going back and forth. And it's wrong. 
Others will define this as saying, well, let's see. So what Paul's describing then in Romans, he's leading all the way up to the seventh chapter. He's defining who he was before he was born again. And then Romans 8, he moves into the life of the spirit after salvation. And that's, you hear that a lot of times too, especially from evangelical or spirit-filled believers. And I believe that one's wrong too. And other times you just hear people say, I don't know what the heck is going on here. It sounds like he's lost his mind. Well, I believe that this is just Paul describing his utter inability in and of himself to live out the Christian life as God has called us to do it. And that's the very truth of the, of the, of the thing. Yes, before you're born again, you, you don't have the ability to, to live it out for God any more than, uh, uh, you know, a, any more than you could, you know, jump to the moon. But when you're born again, you do have the ability to serve God now. There's nothing compelling you to sin, but you still do have the opportunity, the ability. You have a free will. But if you, even as a Christian, as a spirit-filled believer, if you are carnal, if you are naturally minded and you focus on the things of this world and the situations and circumstances of your life and the problems that come before you and you focus and magnify those things, you still will live this life of frustration, saved or unsaved. And I believe that's what Paul is pointing out is that apart from God, apart from life in and after the Spirit, our utter inability to serve God is what he's pointing out. In the seventh chapter of Romans, the Spirit is mentioned one time. In Romans chapter 8, 21 times, he goes on to describe a life that we're called to live. There it is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, we still have the ability to walk according to the flesh. What's this mean? In the Spirit, out of the Spirit, after the Spirit. If you have been born again... You are in the Spirit. You have changed locations. You have got a new identity, a new spiritual address, as it were. No more sin nature. Now you have a holy nature. Okay? So, people say, you're not in the Spirit. Yes, you are. If you have been saved, you are in the Spirit. You're in Christ. He's in you. Now, choosing to walk after or according to the Spirit is a choice. It is a free will choice or offering, as you will. And in as much as we choose to walk in agreement with God and His Word and His promises concerning us, we will live a life of victory and peace as we magnify the Lord over and above the situations and circumstances of our life. But, for example, if, you, if someone offends you, 
If someone hurts you terribly, somebody says something, somebody does something to you. And instead of going and doing what the Word tells you to do about that, you decide to dwell on that hurt. You have effectively decided to live according or after the flesh. Okay? It's a choice. Now, it's not always an easy one, but if you just make up your mind to agree with God, things will go much easier for you. That's when you'll be living in and after the Spirit. If you choose to dwell on that hurt, it's going to produce death in your life. It's going to produce depression, anger, bitterness, resentment, all of the things that are so painful to us, and all of those things equal death. Death is not just the physical uh, death and the funeral that we're so accustomed to when our spirit leaves our body. No, death is produced by many things. Anything that is not of God is effectively producing and causing death. Every time we open a door for the enemy into our life by accepting something that's ungodly, if it's not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then it's not God. And if it, and I will submit to you that the much better way to handle that offense, and it takes practice, trust me, is to give it to God right away. Don't let it get down into your heart where it's way harder to uproot and get rid of. Just decide, I'm not going to dwell on that. You need to see people's, when they, people's offenses, when they hurt you, when they say things, when they do things, that's not godly. You need to see it as their need for something that you already have. They have a God-sized void in them. Or they or they just having a bad day and they've just yielded to Satan's uh, suggestions in their mind and they've allowed him to speak through them. It doesn't mean they're of the devil any more uh, than you are, but they might be. <laughs> Either way, you need to just give it to God and trust Him with it and He's going to deal with it in His way and His time. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that as long as we keep our focus on that person, on that wrong behavior, on that wrong thing that they've done, guess whose eyes God uh, will, guess who will God will have His eyes on? You. So it's counterproductive in many ways. You need to just let it go and let God pray for that person. It's much harder to be angry with someone that you're praying for. When you really see that it's a spiritual need that they have, it looks like they're winning. It looks like they've got the best of you. It looks like they're even succeeding in life. And it's all based on their lies and deception and wrongdoing. God says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that because it's short-lived. And if, and if you know, uh, uh, we were at lunch last Sunday when we left here, went to that great uh, P.F. Chang's. Oh, man, it was so good. And uh, But I just, when going in there, I seen this, uh, this beautiful four-door Porsche parked in a handicap spot, and it wasn't even in the handicap spot right, you know. And they had their handicap thing just thrown up on the dash. And, and I just... I said, man, I'm glad my niece isn't here because she's a big advocate. Her husband is in a wheelchair. And, uh, boy, she will go off on somebody like that. And, and I was just really watching to see who got in that vehicle. And I was sitting there watching through the window. I think I even mentioned it to the others. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, what are you worried about that for? 
This is what I'm telling you. Here I was entertaining this thought of their wrongdoing and judging them. And, and, and it was something that was a judgeable offense. It was wrong probably. But it's just not for me to carry that load. Sheep were never meant to carry packs on their back. And if we will learn to lighten our load and give everything to God, man, He is well able. He has broad shoulders. He is the one who can carry all the burden. Plus, He sees much further than we do. And He has a way of dealing with these things in His way, in His time. And it frees us up. See, we create these prison cells for ourselves by holding on to hurts and and things and a lot of times it's things that we've done that caused it ourselves. I, I'm I'm a, I'm one who can can talk to you from that standpoint. Who all of the problems in my life for the most part now born into rejection, born into hardship and hard times. Yeah, but as an adult, I made choices of my own that were terrible, and they caused lots of pain. And they caused me lots of pain. And, and if I were to dwell on those things, I would just be a wreck. I would still be sitting on a bar stool somewhere telling people about Jesus. A, a Jesus of my imagination, mind you, that I made up, who was fine with all of us who were there. And he just didn't like you hypocrites here at church. <laughs> but at some point, we have to take responsibility for our actions. Give it to God and move on. He's got a positive future for us, a beautiful, bright future, but He can't get that to us as long as we're holding on to the ugly. And that's what we tend to do. We, we'll, we'll come out of it for a moment and we'll gravitate back to it. And it's just so damaging to our lives, because even if I used to tell my brother who passed away last year at the age of 54, but thankfully we we were able to get him to a place where he saw that that God was real. He accepted him as his Lord and Savior, but he never did really get a chance to do the things that God really had for him. And I used to tell him, Lester, if you would just if you would just surrender completely to God and just do it his way I don't care because he kept looking back you see and it was a terrible carnage and wreckage behind him just like it was with me but he chose to dwell on that and decide well my life is done I've I've already had my chance I already had all my good stuff and 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 that's that's typical of somebody who dwells on on those sort of things and you get into kind of self-pity and and things like that or even if it's just judgment of yourself and you just decide you're no good, you listen to the devil. But God is saying, no. You know, you, all of those, whether it's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years prior that you're thinking about, God says, no, you just now, just now about to enter into the future, the plan that I had for your life. you just now getting there. I will do more with just a few years or even a few days than you ever did with five or six or seven decades on your own. If you would just completely put your trust in me. I believe that. I know it to be true. And I encourage others to give God a try.
And it's, it doesn't come automatically, though. But I tell people first, you have to change your thinking, and you'll change your life. Your, a lot of cases, your attitude is going to determine your altitude. <clears throat> and you might have the best uh, personality and the best outlook, and you might have the best advice and godly wisdom for others, but when you hold yourself to such a high standard and, and in condemnation, you're really hindering God's work in your life and He wants you to soar like an eagle again. And He's the only one that can allow you to do that. But we really do hinder God's plans when we stand in His way like that. We, we limit the Holy One of Israel is what it says in Psalm 78. Time and time again, the children of Israel turned back. They had a negative attitude. They limited God and what He wanted to do for them. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So your life is going to go the predominant way of your thinking. Paul invites us, we skip all the way from Romans 8 to Romans 12. Not only invites us, he begs us. If you'll look, if you have it, Romans 12, 1 and 2, briefly and then... I think we'll be done today. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. I urge you. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you. By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable service, the King James says. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Those are stages, by the way. And your growth and your understanding of God's will, His plan, His perfect provision for your life are going to come in those stages. You're going to, you're going to, it's going to be good, and then it's going to be acceptable, and it's going to be perfect. This is the greater revelation that you will have as you allow him to begin working on that old uh, misprogrammed mind that soul which has been so damaged God wants to heal you everywhere you hurt but it's a partnership he's never going to interfere with your free will but to the extent that you will take a step toward him he'll run five towards you when we see the prodigal son when he was coming home After having been gone for probably a few years, he spent all of the inheritance that he demanded of his father in advance while his father was still living. It's like saying, well, I wish you would just die. Give me my money. And he took it, and he went and spent it all on, on hookers and drinking, frankly. And, and then he came home when he came to himself, and he said, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go ask my father just to make me like one of his servants because he was working feeding pigs for somebody in this foreign land and and he just wanted some of the pods he was feeding the pigs. Nobody would even give him that. He said, I'm going to go to my father's house and just, I I can't be a son anymore. I've thrown that away, but I'm just going to, I'm going to ask him just to put me to work, you know. 
And when that boy was still a long way off, the father went running, running to him. And he took him in. He put the ring on his finger, the shoes on his feet, the robe, the robe of righteousness, the signet ring of authority. He killed the fatted calf. And he said, he had to explain to that older brother who was jealous. He said, don't you see? He was, he was dead, but now he's alive. He's home. That's us. God loves us. He has so much. He wants to do with us and for us and through us. But we have to agree with him about his word and about his promises to desire to be that salt and light in this world the world needs us so desperately God needs us Jesus sat down when he was finished and he gave his authority to us we are his mouthpiece his hands and his feet in this world and I just pray that we will all just Meditate on this this week and just seek God and press in and tell him we just want to do it his way and we want to let him fix us his way and use us, make us usable. He has to heal us first. and We have to let him do that and then he can make us usable. He cares a lot more about you than what you can do for him. So let him, let him help you first. And then... Find out what he's got in store because it's beautiful. Do you feel his love today? Praise God. Praise God. Father, we, we love you and we thank you for showing us how much you love us. We believe it. We believe you today and, and, and we accept your love. We receive your love knowing that we can't give away what we haven't received from you. You are the source of all love and light. And we do want to be useful to you in this, these last days, these troubling times. But Lord, we have to, we admit that there's some areas of our lives and our minds and our hearts that are just hurt and broken. And we just ask you to step in and heal us everywhere we hurt. Make us whole again. Make us useful. Help us to love ourselves and so that we can love others and love you with the same love we've received. Thank you for putting our focus back on you, helping us to walk in and after the Spirit of God that you have supplied us with the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of us and help us to learn to draw upon it. And be strengthened and to walk victoriously in this life. We praise you, Father, and we thank you that you are working in our lives up to and including now and starting now, especially as we have opened the door for you and asked you to intervene. Help us, Lord, to, to see it more clearly and to see and to experience your love and provision for our lives and to help others to receive the same of you that we have been comforted with ourselves in Jesus name amen